0: From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. Welcome to The Tea Room. In 2020, researchers at Stanford University did an extensive literature review to devise what they've called presence five. So five validated techniques that are proven to enhance connection and communication between doctors and patients. But Shortly after their paper was published, COVID-19 pushed patients out of the doctor's clinic and onto a screen via telehealth but we know that for patients and doctors, there are pros and cons to telehealth consultations. So the Stanford team went back to their research and adapted Presence 5 specifically for telehealth consultations, and they've dubbed the adaptation TelePresence 5. Joining us in the tea room today is one of those researchers, Professor Stephen W. Russell. He's also a doctor of medicine and works in the Department of Medicine and Pediatrics, at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, USA. Professor Russell recently co-authored a paper in the Medical Journal of Australia about telepresence 5. In a minute, he's going to talk us through how to conduct some diagnoses via telehealth. But before we do that, Professor Russell, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Wendy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast and uh, I'm excited to talk about telehealth.
0: Well, maybe you could start with just giving us a quick overview of Presence 5, so the original research underpinning TelePresence 5.
1: Right, and thanks for starting with that, because it was two years right before the pandemic began in January 2020, when researchers at Stanford University and colleagues of mine published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, in which they talked about ways that physicians can re-engage with their patients when they're in the exam room. Now, of course, at that point in time, we had no idea what was to come. At least we certainly didn't in our neck of the woods. But what we found from that paper, and this was based on interviews and research in the field, was that there are five things that physicians can do in order to prepare themselves for an interaction with the patient. Uh, the first was to prepare with intention. So just thinking about what you're going to be Uh, doing in that exam space and what the patient might need. The second was listen intently and completely. And for perhaps other general practitioners like myself, that can be difficult at times when you're in a space with a patient. And yet there's so many other things that may be running through your mind, either with that patient or perhaps with other patients to come. The third was to agree on what matters most. So Many people, myself included, will go in thinking, I need to make sure I talk about the blood pressure or the diabetes, and yet the patient may have some specific questions that she has. And so we wanna make sure that those are addressed and that we're not just railroading through our list without hearing what the patient may need. And the final two, connect with the patient's story. So find some way to really not only listen, but make sure that the patient feels heard with the complaints. And then the final is explore emotional cues. So when a patient is seeming distressed over an issue that's happening at home or at work, really being able to acknowledge that and see if that might have some level of impact on her care.
0: Since COVID, Presence 5 has evolved into TelePresence 5. What's the difference?
1: Right, so Presence 5 was based on lots of research that had been done and culling of the medical literature to try and really understand how physicians can be at their best being physically present when they're in a space with a patient. Two months later, when the pandemic hit the shores of the United States and made its way from west to east, we realized that there was going to need to be a change in the way we conducted business. And of course, that wasn't unique to us. Physicians across the world experienced that. And the response in our area was with telemedicine or telemedicine, which has been, of course, the response across the world as well. And the researchers who put the original paper out realized that these five tools, these five modes of thinking are really transcendent upon many different ways in which physicians interact. So it's not just in the physical space with the patient, but when we switched to telemedicine, we realized that these same tools could be used in a digital space, in in a telemedicine visit that one might have uh, with their patient. And so really the concept is the same, preparing with intention. When there's not that physical presence with a patient, sometimes it's easy to get distracted. We all have experience with that, with the glass divide that's between ourselves and the person on the other end of the line. But being able to prepare and reset, take a moment to look at the patient's chart. Listening intently and completely is really hard to do when there's other things going on and you realize that the patient is not visibly in the, looking at you through, uh, through the exam room. And yet being able to focus on the camera of your device can be tremendously helpful for making that digital eye contact. Agreeing what matters most is very important, recognizing that telemedicine visits may be perhaps shorter or maybe not as much time devoted to uh, the visit. And because of that, some of the nonverbal cues that we might use in a physical space need to be aware, we need to be aware of those in the digital space. And then the final two, connecting with the patient's story. One benefit of telemedicine is that we were, for the first time, for many many providers, myself included, invited into patients' homes. The vast majority of uh, training that I've done and then subsequent practice has been in a clinical space where the patients come to us. And yet, with telemedicine, we had the opportunity to come to them where they were sitting, to see their living room, perhaps to see their pets or plants in the background. It really gave us an opportunity to have a new way to connect with our patients. And then finally, exploring emotional cues. We all had a common experience, and in many ways, still do with how the pandemic has affected us. And so, being able to acknowledge that and build upon that in the telemedicine space was really a new and innovative way to try and connect even when there's a digital divide.
0: I love everything you're saying. Forgive me for suggesting. These appear to be fairly common sense approaches, though. Why, why is there a need to write journal articles about this? Why is there a need to turn them into formal guidelines? oh, that's an excellent point.
1: It's an excellent point because really it's true. You look at these things and you think, I learned that in my first and second year of medical school when I was learning how to examine a patient and learning what the spleen was for and all of those aspects of the fundamentals of medicine.
0: As adults, we assume that, oh, you know, I'm great at reading body language. I know exactly what that person (laughs) is thinking.
1: Exactly, exactly. And yet until that mirror is held up for me, sometimes it's really hard to recognize that I've fallen away from some of the key fundamentals of medicine. I've been in practice almost two decades. And yet sometimes when the the time pressure is there or when I'm really pushed with other responsibilities, those fundamentals can really fall away. And so for me as a practitioner, listening to this research and learning from this journal article I realized that there was probably more things that I could do to prepare, not just go into a patient's room, uh, sort of cold as it were, but to take a moment and look at the chart and say, ah, yes, Mrs. Jones, who's coming to see us, is the one who has the daughter that's doing training in Washington, D.C., and perhaps remember that connection. So other uh, practitioners have used ideas such as just before going into that space, put your hand on your mouse or on your laptop and just take a deep breath and let it out. And as simple as that seems for me, and I know for other of my colleagues, it really can be very centering on trying to make sure that you are fully present, even when there's a distance between you and the patient.
0: This sounds like it could be good for doctors as well as for the patient, taking that little bit of, it's almost it's almost self-care in between patients, yes. being present, pulling Absolutely. back. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. It's one of the aspects of wellness that really for me probably got pushed aside as I went farther in my career, as I perhaps had more patients on a given time than I may have had before. I realized that I just needed to get the work done to move on to the next patient, and that's not what I went into medicine for. And so the the forced pause that we had when we had to reconsider how we were going to practice medicine in a digital space really allowed me to reconnect with some of those Uh, aspirations that I had when I first went into medicine. So fundamental, yes. Very elemental, yes. But for me, very, very helpful in reconnecting with my patients.
0: Have you been personally challenged to do this better since this research? How's that going? Absolutely. So in my line of work,
1: I not only have my own general practice where I see patients of all ages, but I also teach in that space as well. So we have learners, mostly in the American system, graduate medical learners, or those who are residents, and they're coming and I'm realizing that they're watching what I'm doing. They're not only learning about how to check a blood pressure or how to treat hypertension, they're also learning how do I interact with patients? And so this research for me gave me a chance to reset, recalibrate, and remember how to do things properly And I hope, based on some of the feedback that I've gotten, that I was doing that beforehand. But when we're starting to teach and write about the telemedicine space, it was important for me to really take stock and to realize, am I doing the things I'm writing about? Am I practicing the best practices that I advise?
0: Walking your talk. Exactly. One of the recent article in the Medical Republic was written by a contributing doctor, and uh, she said that having students helped keep her honest. And I thought that was a really great approach. Thinking, you know, people are watching more than just your clinical, yes. your clinical technical medical skills. Yes,
1: I think that's true. It's keeping you honest, but it's also keeping you humble to realize that I may be the professor in this situation, but I'm learning a ton both from my students, both from the interactions with my patients, and for me, being able to interact in a new way, such as the telemedicine space, really challenged my own digital skills and technical skills, and so that's another way to really be be humbled in that space too.
0: Yeah, and I guess it is it's a little bit dismissive to say that being present and connecting isn't a clinical skill because it really is. That's the channel, the access to finding out how things are for the patient really. It
1: is, it is. And we look at, I certainly did during my training, those who've come before us and those who are maybe more senior in their careers and realize that there's so many different things that they do that automatically establish a connection with them. And it's interesting that in this landmark article, there were over 30 separate identifications of tools that physicians use and and practices that can be helpful. And so it took a while and several committees of experts to be able to boil it down and match that with the medical literature to be able to say, okay, what of these things are most important? And so, for instance, one of the ones that didn't get put in the telemedicine space is physical touch. And of course, you can't do that in the telemedicine space. And really, when you're in the clinical space, there's a lot of nuance in terms of how we physically examine our patients and how we physically interact with our patients in that space. And yet they were able to talk about making sure that you seemed as if you were physically present. By one of the examples I used earlier, which is looking in the camera and really listening, doing that nonverbal communication of head nodding. And it's the thing that you and I might do if we were in the same room together. But when you may not have those same nonverbal cues, it it really can make a difference. And so listening intently sometimes involves looking and sometimes involves just making eye contact with your patient.
0: Have you been liaising with anyone in the health tech industry in the USA?
1: I haven't been in particular working with one particular health tech industry. My colleagues, I have a colleague at Stanford who I was working with on this paper that was in the Medical Journal of Australia. And Stanford is in California and a hotbed for digital research and for Mm. internet connectivity. And so she and some of her colleagues have been engaging with some of them. One of my colleagues here more locally has been engaging with digital tech companies to figure out how we can get access to everyone? How can we be more equitable with our telemedicine? Because in our area of the States, we're a very rural area. Certainly the centers where our hospital is, is more urban and we have a lot more opportunities for broadband access. But many of our patients live 30, 50, hundred miles from our area in areas where the broadband access has been very limited. So we do have some folks at my institution who've been working with digital companies to try and make sure that our broadband access and our infrastructure is more robust than it is when we started the pandemic.
0: We're talking about using a video link with a patient. What does the research tell us about how effective that is in diagnosing different conditions?
1: Well, one of the first things we recognized is that it is a fertile area for research. And I'll give you an example. So if a patient comes into my office with shoulder pain, I can use a series of physical exam maneuvers to be able to fairly reliably determine if that patient has a tear in one of their rotator cuff muscles of the shoulder, or if it's a tendinitis. Perhaps it's an overuse and something that might involve a different treatment plan. And there's well-established algorithms and pathways that physicians can use in the clinical space to be able to make that diagnosis. When the pandemic began and when my first engagement with telemedicine really took off, I didn't have any research to be able to look upon and to be able to point to, to say, the telemedicine space is going to help me diagnose a shoulder exam. And yet some of those same tools that I would use by moving the patient's shoulder through certain ranges of motion and certain activities, we can get the patient to actually do that herself. And in her home, she can lift her shoulder above her head. And if she's unable to do that, we know what that means in the physical exam space And we assume that that's going to be having similar information in the telemedicine space. Likewise, if we have a patient move their arm in a certain position, say in front of them, and we move that arm in a certain position, we have reliable data to say that can indicate an impingement of the shoulder muscles, which might lead us down one pathway or another. And so when we teach the patient how to do it herself, when we have her put her Back against the chair, perhaps even holding her own shoulder blade.
0: well, talk me through it. yeah, let's do it now, even though even though this is just audio, only a podcast, not sure how this will go, but let's give it a shot. let's <laughs> pretend Let's pretend that I am a patient coming in with shoulder pain. excellent and let's uh, let's assume you've done that lovely connection. We've established that this is an issue for me it's it's my concern, et cetera. Let's just jump to the diagnosis, talk me through it.
1: Yes. Okay. So Wendy, you're coming to me and you have shoulder pain and it's been going on for three months. And so regardless of whether you and I are in the same room or in this example, we're in a telemedicine space, I can look back to a landmark article that came out in 2012 in the States. And it was actually in a, it was in an orthopedic journal. And what we do with that article is we say there's three things, with the information from that article, we say there's three things that I want to know about your shoulder right now. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to take your shoulder and I want you to lift it both arms above your head. In the United States, in American football, we would consider that a touchdown if both arms are going <laughs> above the head, right? Your elbows right. are straight and the hands are up. Got if it. you cannot do that with one arm or if you can get it up there, but ask you to slowly lower it back down and the affected side just drops down, I'm worried that you have a tear in your shoulder. Now, that in and of itself is not enough. So I'm gonna then ask you to say, all right, Wendy, I want you to pretend like you have a soda can in your hand. I want you to reach that soda can out with both hands. Now I want you to turn that soda can upside down and then lift up as if you're trying to make a big arc of the soda that's coming out of the can. If you're limited with one side of doing that, with your affected side, or if it's too painful, that's another bullet point where I can say, aha, I'm really worried about that shoulder muscle. Mm. The final thing that I want you to do is I want you to sit in your chair. And I want you to put your hands by your side, pretend that you've got a newspaper in front of you. And I know newspapers are vanishingly rare in the United States and perhaps in Australia as well. But let's say you have a newspaper.
0: The Medical Republic is also still in print.
1: Fantastic. Okay. So let's say that you have the latest edition of the Medical Republic in front of you. And what I want you to do is I want you to hold with your right hand and your left hand, and your elbows pressed by your side, that Medical Republic. Now you have something you're really interested in in the beginning. So I want you to keep your elbows pressed to your side but open it all the way to where your hands are almost as far apart as they can be with your elbows still Mm. pressing. If you're showing me tenderness or pain or limitations in doing that, I've got another bullet point. And while each of those bullet points may be limited when used in isolation, we know from this landmark article from 10 years ago that if you combine all three of those, and let's say each one is positive, you cannot lift your arm up or you can't hold it in control as you're dropping it, or you try and coat that can of soda out and it's too painful on one side than the other, or you can't lift one side out for the newspaper and you can for the other. I have three areas that I'm interested in now, two muscles that you've shown me and one range of motion. Mm. And so now I'm really suspicious that you have a tear. So the last thing I'm gonna get you to do is I'm gonna get you to take your elbow and lift it in front of you like you're pushing your thumb above your head towards the back. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I want you to keep that elbow straight so that your arm is as close to your ear as possible. And if you're unable to do that because of pain or because of limitations with tenderness, I've got my answer. If all three of those are present, you cannot lift the range of motion of your shoulder. You cannot have good strength in those areas that we're looking at on the affected shoulder. And you can't take that thumb up by your ear. What I'm describing is something called the NEARS test, because it's near your ear, one way to think about it, then each of those three takes your suspicion of having a rotator cuff tear from moderate to very high. Now, I wanna flip that. So if each of those three are fine, yes, you can move your shoulder and it's sore, or you can open the newspaper or pour out the can of Coke. And yes, it's sore, but you can do it. And that NEARS test, your elbow near your ear can get all the way up there, maybe with some soreness, but not with limitations. I'm now thinking that you have a tendonitis. And I'm dating this back 10 years ago to this original study that was done by Murrell and colleagues. And what I'm now thinking is that's either going to lead me towards advanced imaging, you can't do any of the three, or towards physical therapy, stretches and strengthening, you can do all three, but they're sore. So in that one example, it took a little time to describe, but when that one example, what you do based on my instructions is very helpful for me. So we call that a patient-assisted physical exam. So I tell you what to do, you try and do it and replicate it. And I can judge based on your reaction and your response, if that's something that is valid for moving down one pathway or another.
0: That's fantastic for shoulder pain. You've also in the Medical Journal of Australia article, there's a list of a number of other conditions that from research you've been able to how diagnose effectively through telehealth, like upper respiratory tract infections. Absolutely. So
1: let's take two examples. Let's take one, which is an infectious example. So if a patient comes to me with a cough, runny nose and a cold, and let's say for this example, that we have access to determine that this is not COVID based on a whole number of reasons, home testing or prevalence in the community. If I have that patient and she's the right age, let's say she's a 12 year old girl, If I have her open up her mouth and in the back of her throat, I see swollen red tonsils and I see pus on those tonsils, I'm worried this might be strep. And so now I want to look at her neck. So I'm going to have her lift her neck and look over her right and left shoulder. And if she does that and I can see these large swollen anterior lymph nodes, I'm worried still that this may be strep. And perhaps if I'm really lucky and the lighting is right, I see that she has a fine red rash, across perhaps under her arm or across her abdomen, then my suspicion for strep goes through the roof compared to beforehand where maybe I was thinking it was a viral infection. Maybe I was thinking it was mononucleosis. Now, would I like to have the strep test to confirm that? Yes, I would. But we also recognize that telehealth has both benefits, real-time access to care, but also limitations, which is confirmatory information that we might not have in the digital space. So in that particular example, I'm thinking that this patient may have strep throat based on all of the right criteria. And I'm more willing to go ahead and treat in that particular example. One other example, that's even much more straightforward than that. If I have a patient who comes in and she tells me that she has pain that's going around her right side and it's never been there before. And she woke up this morning and there was a rash. And if I can make sure that she's safe in a safe environment, in a well-lit environment and appropriately, modestly covered, if she can show me that rash, And if I see the telltale sign of shingles or zoster, then I feel very comfortable making that diagnosis from a distance, being able to say, this looks to me like it's shingles and let's move forward with treating that. And so in these three examples, looking at a shoulder pain, looking at an upper respiratory infection and looking at a rash that's brand new and painful, we can use the video space, the telemedicine space to digitally diagnose patients. Do we have the large body of data that we might have in a clinical space, an exam space that's shared together? Perhaps not yet, but these are areas that are really low-hanging fruit for research and areas that we think that we can confirm the diagnosis even in a digital space. And some of that research is being done right now.
0: A system I think would be useful is the technology that allows you to be looking at the screen and looking at the patient so that they can see your eyes looking at them instead of looking always up at a camera or down or to the side as a camera. So I think in terms of what will help telehealth considerably with that initial connection, with that eye-to-eye contact, which for some cultures is not appropriate but for other cultures is, is required, necessary, that would be a very handy tool.
1: And I do, I completely agree with that. And I do think that there's a good bit of research and development that's being done here locally in Birmingham, Alabama. There's a company that's looking at the ability to transmit images from one place to the next. And in their prototype right now, they have a portal where the physician can look at those images in real time with the patient. So there's a shared screen so that they can be looking at the same image, that same technology is being looked at through much more advanced technologies than we're presently using, where a patient might use virtual reality, where they can use the camera on their phone to be in a shared space. And that way, the cameras can then start to focus on certain areas of interest. A third area that's much more accessible right now is a digital stethoscope. So one particular company here in the United States is called Echo. And while I have no affiliation with them, the Echo Company has developed a digital stethoscope that, say, a clinic in a much more rural area of Alabama can have that particular stethoscope. They can have a three-way call with a cardiologist, and the practitioner in that space can place the digital stethoscope on the chest of the patient who's there for a cardiology concern. And the person on the other end of the line, the cardiologist in the more urban area in an academic medical center, is now able to hear with the assistance of the patient or the patient and the provider, what's going on and make some real time decisions that way as well.
0: So there's a a burgeoning industry in these patient end tools that can be used for diagnosis. There is. As well as the telepresence five approach that you are advocating for how doctors can right now, without extra technology right now, deliver better healthcare through video calls. Do you have any data around what devices are being used more commonly are they laptops are they iPads are they iPhones?
1: right for the majority I do for the majority of our patients we are finding that they're using their iPads or their phones so they're using a tablet device or a phone device which they' most people are very familiar with in terms of being able to look at the camera in the eye so to speak and be able to have structures that they are now able to optimize that video. We have noticed, and this has been published more recently too in uh, one of our local journals here, that our older population, so those who are on Medicare in the States, those who are over age 65, are less likely to have some of those devices. So many times we have to partner with the patient's extended family. So we have a daughter or a son who will come in using their personal device to help mom or dad be able to engage in that telemedicine space
0: in Australia, we're also finding that that's useful in families and patients who come from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds.
1: Yes, very much so. And we, uh, I can appreciate that 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 aspect is really novel and new way to be able to engage with patients. And we've found that really it brings a a richer experience when we're able to meet on the patient's own area when their home or their place of work. But we've also found that it helps us to partner with our patients. So when we are going through an exam and we're doing a patient assisted physical exam, it's really an opportunity to break down some of those structural barriers or even some of those hierarchical barriers that might be present to be able to find something that is both jovial and and almost an icebreaker where we have the patient move her hand in such a way that uh, might seem silly at first, but we are able to now explain why we're doing this. I can tell you prior to the pandemic, there were many times where, in spite of my fundamental training, I might have done something without sharing the patient what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I think in the telemedicine space, we're obligated to say, I'm now going to ask you to lift your hand above your head because when I do that, I'm looking for pain or tenderness here or there. And so, in many ways, that particular example that we went through earlier now translates back into the clinical space. And so, I'm now reminding myself, make sure that you're communicating why you're doing what you're doing so that the patients can partner with you in this aspect of the exam.
0: It occurs to me that this great divide, the glass divide that you referred to earlier, that that is perhaps making doctors more patient-centered in some way, having to go that extra effort to connect because it is via video.
1: I think so because patients can tell really quite quickly when a physician is engaged in what's going on or when that person may be more distracted. So telemedicine has really given us an opportunity to lean forward with that engagement and making sure that we are both hearing and being heard, making sure that we're communicating and being able to summarize what the patient is communicating with us. The other aspect of this as well is we're starting to realize there are some visits that really don't need to have a shared clinical space In order to be useful. So, if patients have access to some of their digital information at home, if they can gather blood pressures at home or blood sugar readings, we might be able to have a check in based on a new medicine that was started and save the patient time and save the patient the travel that it may take to get to the clinic. And that's more efficient for them. It's equally effective for us. And we think that that also builds relationships and builds community with our patients.
0: And it also is giving doctors that chance to pause, hand on the mouse, take a breath in and out, a bit of moment of self-care wellness between each patient. I
1: think so. I think that's really quite a quite a perceptive summary and it really has been my experience as well.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think that
1: telemedicine is still in its infancy. So we spoke earlier about ways in which research can be helpful in confirming what we think we know I think telemedicine has also exposed this digital divide that we've talked about and given us opportunities to be more equitable in our care. And you brought up a point earlier, which I think is, is critically important in the States as well, which is there are going to be cultural differences in which the telemedicine space has to be adjusted somewhat, both for patient safety, for patient privacy, but also for patient cultural practices. And so it gives us an opportunity to be more responsive to what our patients need. Because quite frankly, before the pandemic, I think there were times where I had a one size fits all approach for certain conditions and may have been less sensitive to some of the cultural needs of my patients. So as I mentioned earlier, I've been out of practice, I've been in practice for almost two decades, and yet I'm still learning. I'm still humbled by what I need to learn. And I'm now starting to find new ways to partner with my patients.
0: Professor Stephen W. Russell, I appreciate your insights on Telepresence 5 and also appreciate the, uh, I guess, the humility of you coming in and saying, hey, I'm learning still after two decades of practice. So thank you for sharing all of that.
1: Well, thank you, Wendy. This has been a pleasure for me. And I've also realized that there are some commonalities that we can learn across the world too. So certainly for your listeners in Australia They're going to be teaching me new and creative ways in order to engage in this space as perhaps i may have through this article that we've done
0: have a great day thanks
1: wendy you too it's been a pleasure
0: that was professor stephen w russell from the department of medicine and pediatrics at the university of alabama at birmingham i'm wendy john thanks for joining us today in the tea room if you've enjoyed this episode search for us on your favorite podcast player and subscribe Leave us a review if you like. If you've got any tips or want to let me know what you're talking about in your tea room, email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. Tea Room is a production from the Journalists at the Medical Republic. Keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love keeping you informed. Thanks for tuning in.